God, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, as we continue in our worship before you, we ask that you would bless the preaching of the word, that you would set before us our Redeemer, even as we hear John recording how it was that he hung on the cross and gave up the spirit. Father, we rejoice. We're gathered even now to know that this crucified one is the risen and now the reigning one. Lord, as we hear about his suffering, we pray that you would instruct our hearts we would see Christ spit and afflicted, yet glorious to our eyes, our Redeemer, in whom we have life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We live in a day of what people call pluralism. Uh, religious pluralism is kind of the mantra of the day that it doesn't really matter what religion you have. All religions are as important as the other, just as long as you're sincere or you just believe. And indeed, it is an anathema to say that there's only one way. There's only one way of salvation. Christianity, though, is different from all other religions. We are completely dependent upon our founder, Jesus Christ. Without him, there's no Christianity. This is not true of any other religion. Confucianism, Eastern religion, Buddhism, they rely on the teaching of their founders, but the men themselves are not necessary. Even Islam points to Muhammad as its founder. But according to the religion, Muhammad received the Quran from some supposed revelation from an angel. And once again, Muhammad is not necessary for Islam. Christianity is built on a set of truths about Jesus Christ, about he himself. John Stott, the late English preacher, observes, the person and work of Christ are the rock upon which the Christian religion is built. If he is not who he said he was, and if he did not do what he said he had come to do, the foundation is undermined, and the whole superstructure will collapse. Take Christ from Christianity and you disembowel it. There's practically nothing left. Christ is the center of Christianity. All else is circumference. Indeed, the Christian religion is centered on a Savior who lived a sinless life and died a sacrificial death for sinners, rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for his people. He reigns in heaven and he reigns in the hearts of all those who believe on him. For they know him. This is his promise. He, they know him as he is known. This one true religion is from a bowl, but it, it, it all hinges on what took place on a cross 2,000 years ago. We come to look at the death of Christ in John 19. Today we come to the moment where we read and he gave up his spirit. We'll look at this text this week as well as next week. But we want to focus this morning, particularly, as the title suggests, on the words, I thirst. It's Christ from the cross said, I thirst. We use four main headings. Jesus thirst, Jesus bearing God's wrath, Jesus dying in the sinner's place, and Jesus thirsting to save sinners. So we begin with Jesus thirst. John says, 
after this. With this brief phrase, these two words, John skips over many other things that took place. There were other events that happened during the course of the crucifixion as Jesus was suspended outside of the Sheep Gate there by Jerusalem that day. John purposely moves forward, leaving out many things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have recorded. They're already recorded. It is for John to record all that the Holy Spirit moved him to write in his own account of the Gospel. And what does John say next? He records Jesus' last act, an event that Calvin says, quoting him as the greatest of the greatest importance, thirst. Verse 28 and 29, we read, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. John then reports that there was a vessel full of sour wine sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. And then he goes on to say, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. <clears throat> there was a vessel sitting there. Uh, the record from history tells us that this was the custom, uh, that they would have this sour wine. And what sour wine is, children, it's vinegar. Uh, one of the things we have to be careful with with the communion wine is that we keep it stored in such a way that it does not have a lot of contact with the air because that's what happens to wine. It turns into vinegar. And no one wants to drink vinegar. What does it do? It, it sets our teeth on edge. There's a, a bitterness to it. Certainly there's a place in some dishes for it. But sour wine or vinegar is not a pleasant thing. But they kept the vessels there. And at a point, the soldiers would give it to those on the cross to drink because it would hasten their death. Here we see Jesus in agony. We've, we've looked at this before. He, he's hanging between heaven and earth on a cross, suspended as the one who bridges between God and man. <coughs> the God-man, God who came down for earth, took himself, our humanity, the Son of Man, as he calls himself. He's suffering. He's crucified. He's exhausted. I would pointed out to you that in order to breathe because of the hands being suspended and sagging in the body in order to get breath, the crucified one would have to push up on feet that were pierced in order to relieve the pressure on the diaphragm to get another gasp of air. In time, the victim would become exhausted. They typically would die when they could no longer push themselves up. They were so weary. You can imagine the, the drying out of the mouth, the agony, the parch of the throat, with bleeding wounds, the victim would become dehydrated. The anguish of it all was great. And the crucified hung on the cross. In these, this case, these men, Christ in the midst, hung on the cross from mid-morning into the middle of the afternoon for hours. This is in the Middle East. And it would have been the midday, the sun would have been hot, but we know in this particular occasion from the other gospel writers that midday became as dark as night. Because something extraordinary was taking place. But nonetheless, here we have our suffering Savior. I thirst. With agony, lifting himself up to get a breath out of these words, I thirst. What about a familiar gasp or cry for the soldiers? Something that they expected to hear. We're told that there's the vessels were set by as the custom was. They, they had even a hyssop branch in order to lift up the contents of these vessels to give to the suffering one. So they would give it to them to hasten along. There was 
no liquid there to quench thirst. There was no water. There was nothing offered to ease their suffering or to moisten the mouth. And look and take note of what Jesus then utters. And why he utters. John says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished. Knowing that all things were now accomplished. Pointed out to you that the giving of the sour wine would hasten on the death of the crucified one. And Jesus has not asked for it. Jesus did not ask for this drink until all things were accomplished. Our blessed Redeemer did not seek anything for himself until he had done all to save us. The remarkable. Here we see him. He's, he's bleeding. He's dying. He's giving himself as a sacrifice for sinners. The innocent one dying for the guilty. Afflicted and suffering for our sake. For this reason he came into the world. But he looks for nothing to relieve his suffering. Until all is accomplished. Here we see love so amazing. Love so divine. Christ is committed to his bride. He's committed to his church. He will do everything that the Father is appointed for him to do to secure the salvation of his people so that they could have their sins forgiven, so that we could be washed and cleansed with his blood, so that his righteousness then could be placed on our account and that his accomplished work would then be at work in us that though uh, still sinners, he is at work in us that we would grow in holiness. Everything that was necessary must be accomplished before he sought relief for himself, before he expressed anything on his own behalf. Scripture says here that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus said, I thirst. Jesus is most likely, commentators are agreed on this, referring to Psalm 69. John in his gospel has already twice referred to this psalm back in chapter 2, verse 17, as well as in chapter 15, verse 25. He quotes from Psalm 69. In Psalm 69, verse 21, David, prophetically speaking, more than likely out of some context of experiences he's suffering, yet he's speaking of his greater son, and he writes these words, they gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. We don't often think, perhaps in the air, of Psalm 69 as a messianic psalm. When I was a young man preparing for a gospel ministry, you know, one of the things you always get ready for in those exams and presbyteries, like, name some messianic psalms. And I was ready. I had five or six ready to go. But over 22 years of ministry, I've come to realize all the psalms are about Christ. They're all messianic. They all speak to him. And here we see this psalm, these words related to this moment on the cross. When everything has been fulfilled, Jesus says, I thirst. And then they offer him vinegar to drink. Imagine children. I know, maybe hard to think about, but remember back in the summer. It's August. It's hot. You're playing outside. You've been full at it, full throttle, playing with your brothers, sisters, and all of a sudden you're like, "I'm so thirsty." You come breaking through the back door, "Mom, I'm thirsty. I want something to drink." And she goes, "Here, here's here's a little cup of vinegar." Not be what would not be much help, would it? We're thirsty. We need the blessing of water. Jesus was given gall. He was given vinegar in his need. 
Jesus knew that the soldiers would give him vinegar to drink. It's recorded in the Psalms. He knows the Psalms by heart. He knew that when he cried, I thirst, they would give him vinegar to drink. John records this because he wants us to understand everything that took place in Jesus' suffering. Even this event was part of the Father's plan. Jesus obeyed his Father even to the very end. He went thirsty to receive vinegar. Maybe Jesus' words point to something more, something more critical to the plan of redemption. And that brings us to our second point. Jesus bearing God's wrath. Jesus bearing God's wrath. The wrath of God. We talk about the wrath of God. But do we meditate on the wrath of God? How much time do we spend thinking about the wrath of God? Perhaps we do when we come to the cross. Very appropriate to do. Maybe in the time when we were being moved upon by the Holy Spirit, convicted of our own sins, recognizing that we deserve the wrath of God, and we heard of this lake of fire, uh, hell, and eternal suffering, uh, experiencing the wrath of God for all eternity. And, and, and most of us would say, yeah, there was a moment where I was terrified at the prospect of the wrath of God. Jesus on the cross experienced the wrath of God. When we use the Apostles' Creed, we have we use a modified version. We say that Jesus descended into Hades. That is the grave, the place of the dead. Uh, the original version was that he descended into hell. And, and that's one of the erroneous thinking. I don't know whether the original uh, formatters or writers of the Apostles' Creed thought that Jesus actually went to hell, but I'm thoroughly persuaded he did not go into hell. But he experienced what is the place of hell as he hung on the cross. When Jesus died, he did not then descend into hell. He has experienced the wrath of God. He has undergone the hell that we deserve on the cross. We see that here as he cries out, I thirst. It's inconceivable for us to understand the suffering of Christ. Surely we, we look at the cross. We look at the suffering of the cross. We've talked about that along the way from the time the crucifixion began. The agony, the afflictions, the suffering, the unimaginable way of dying that the Romans have come up with. Here is the Son of God, the second Adam, who's come to do the will of the Father. Jesus suffered when he came into the world. Jesus' life was one of suffering. Our catechisms rightly describe uh, something like the steps of his descending in humiliation to this very moment and then into the grave. He came from glory. He came from unimaginable glory and splendor and majesty. The creator, our creator, stooped to take on our humanity. The creator took to himself part of the creation, God with us. Emmanuel, God, come into the world to save sinners. And although he was God, he made himself of no reputation. He did not cling to his rights as God. He did not demand that his glory to be displayed while he was upon the earth. And, and he was so united to his humanity in such a way that his deity was veiled. The splendor and majesty of who he truly was was not immediately available or obvious to those who saw him. And thus, uh, they said he was a blasphemer when he made himself out to be the son of God. And yet it was a reality. So it's not something we like to do, is it? 
you get that big promotion, you want everybody to know about it. Uh, you, you win that tournament, you want to celebrate it. You want everybody to know what you've accomplished or your team's accomplished. We're given to celebrate, but here we see Jesus, the King of glory, God of God, very God, Son of God, afflicted, smitten on the cross, suffering, bleeding, dying. You had the right to have the praises of the angels ever before him. He made himself with no reputation. He's the king of glory, yet he comes and lives as a servant, as a slave. And even his humanity, his human form, Isaiah tells us that he wasn't attractive. There was no form or comeliness about him. Remember, um, well, maybe you don't remember, but I hope you do. When, when Saul becomes king, you know, the people wanted a king like the nations around them. And we're told, as Samuel writes to Saul, that he stood a full head taller than all the other men. He was handsome in his appearance. When I preached through 1 Samuel in another place, I said, you know, if there was a Mr. Israel contest, Saul would have won him. He was buff. He was handsome. He was strong. He was attractive. And even David, we're told, he was attractive and comely. When it comes to our Savior in his physical appearance, there's, there's nothing attractive about him. Nothing that would draw us to him. And yet he's the king of glory. When he walked amongst the men and women of Israel in those days, when little boys and girls saw Jesus, they saw a man. They wouldn't even do a double take more than likely. Just another man. All this was part of his humiliation. And then he was despised and rejected. He came to his own, and his own received him not. He goes back to Nazareth, and they want to throw him off the cliff that was in that place. All this was part of his suffering. But Jesus' incarnation, he, the Son of God, coming in our flesh, God becoming flesh, was for a purpose. It was so that he could be crucified as one of us, that he would suffer and die in our place. It was so that he would live under the law that he gave to Moses. It's most remarkable to think about. When Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, he, he sees, in a sense, God. We're told later on that when he would go out to the tent of meeting, <coughs> that unlike with other men, other prophets, you know, God would speak in dreams and visions, and he did that with Abraham. We know that he appeared to Abraham, too, but that was, in, in a, again, in this veiled sense that Abraham did not see him in his full glory. But when he, this, when God appeared with Moses, it was a measure of glory. Most Moses saw the Son of God in his glory. When he came away, he radiated the people. He said, Moses, you put a veil on your face. We can't even look at you because you've been in the presence of God. This same one gave Moses the law. And then he came to earth, took our humanity, and he lived under that law. He kept the law that you and I cannot hear. I cannot keep the law we heard moments ago. He kept that because we needed that obedient record that we could never do it ourselves. Little boys and girls, children, you know this. How many times have your mom or dad told you to do this or that and you run off and you get distracted and 10 minutes later they came and said, well, did you take care of that? No, I forgot. Or maybe they tell you to do something and you just flat out refuse to do it. You throw a temper tantrum. It's so difficult for us to obey, isn't it? Just, just obey our moms and our dads. We're to obey God in all things. And we're not able to. 
Jesus came to do that. He suffered. He, the lawgiver, lived under the law. He kept the law. Every day, Jesus obeyed the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial law. He established a record of righteousness that the Father credits to all who believe. Jesus' record becomes our record. But here's Jesus taking our record. He's on the cross. Our sins, your sins, the guilt, the stain, the filth, the corruption, the vile pollution of our sin is on Christ. And God Almighty pours out His wrath even upon His own beloved Son. God who is infinitely holy and has no fellowship with sin, who has a pure eyes to look upon sin, He turns away, thus Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Such was his affliction. Such was his suffering. And he did it to redeem the people to himself, to his own special treasure. <clears throat> and in order to do this, justice must be satisfied. And Jesus suffered the wrath of God on the cross. Our skins were scarlet. But Jesus shed his blood so that they would be washed away that we would be white as the driven snow. So Jesus hung on that cross, stricken, smitten by God, forsaken by God, for it was God's will for Christ to be crucified. More importantly, God the Father required, the people rejected, the people demanded they be crucified, but the Father required it, and God had foretold it, and Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Jesus hung there between heaven and earth, made sin for us. We're in Isaiah 59. It was not that long ago. We're in Isaiah 53. It reminds you of the words that Isaiah wrote prophetically of this moment where John records what's happening. He's on the cross. John describing the events that Isaiah had foretold. Isaiah said, speaking of Christ, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. Because he poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. There he is. A transgressor, a malefactor, a criminal, left and the right. He's numbered, but he's numbered for our sake, and he stayed, he hangs with our sins. People of God, let us understand we cannot comprehend the magnitude of the suffering that Christ endured. Yes, the cross. Yes, the physical shame and suffering, the affliction of his body, but more so, the wrath of God poured out upon him for sin. He experienced the fullness of God's wrath. And in that sense, he descended into hell. He suffered in our place. And at this point, cries out our thirst. Remember the parable that Jesus told in Luke 16? The rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was a beggar. He had sores. He lay outside the door of the rich man's house. The dogs would lick his sores. And Lazarus just hoped for a few crumbs of bread. 
He was a beggar. He had nothing. Well, in time, Jesus, in his parable, he tells of how the rich man and the Lazarus both died. And the rich man found himself in hell. And Lazarus, as Jesus tells the parable, found himself in the bosom of Abraham. That is in paradise, in heaven. He goes to the place of where righteous men go. He's with God. Not to press the facts of the parable too much, but Jesus does say that, that at least as he tells the story, there's some ability of the rich man to look at the bosom of Abraham, and he sees Lazarus, and it's remarkable. He still has no regard for this man. Whoever lay at his door, he, he sees him as a servant, and he asks that Father Abraham would allow Lazarus to dip his finger in some water, come and carry it, and just put one drop on his tongue. Just to have one small measure to relieve the suffering of that place where unrighteous and ungodly men will spend all of eternity. What was the rich man saying? I thirst. <coughs> and here we see a picture of Christ. We see in this moment on the cross, hell prefigured. Though he did not literally descend into hell, we see what awaits those who reject Christ. We see what is coming for those who refuse Christ, those who are not hidden in Christ by faith. They will thirst when Jesus cries out, I thirst. He's endured the wrath and he thirsts. And what do they offer him? Sour wine, only adding to his suffering and hasten his death. There's something else I want us to notice before we go on to the next point. They filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop. Who's hanging on the cross? And you say, well, Jesus is. But what, we, what do we know about him? You think of the Exodus. What happened right before the Exodus? Children, you, I know you've studied this in your Sunday school classes. There was the Passover. When a lamb that had no spot or blemish was, was killed and the blood was taken, and they took, what did they take? They took a branch of hyssop. And they dipped it in the blood and they put it on the sides of the door and on the lentil over the door. Why? Because the death angel was coming that night. When the death angel saw the blood of the lamb, it passed over. And the firstborn in that house did not die. But all the houses without the blood of the lamb, the firstborn died. And this broke the will of Pharaoh. It broke the back of Egypt. And they drove out the people of God. And Israel was commanded to note that with a feast every year to celebrate the Passover, that they would not forget what God had done, but more importantly, they would look to what God was going to do. And it is happening here as John records it. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and takes away the sin of the world. It is his blood that when it is on our account that death passovers, death is taken away from us. We are dead in sin. We are made alive unto God. And so we hear this account. John has a specific detail that it was hyssop. Now from what I've read and understand, the hyssop, the kind of the, the blossomy, branchy, leafy part of it, acted something like a sponge. Uh, that it, as it was taken from the bush or whatever, and it would be gathered, it could be used to dip and paint, as you were. And we're told, as we read in the Old Testament, that it was not uncommon for the priest to take the hyssop and dip it in the blood and sprinkle God's people, that they would have the blood put upon them. The seems to be what happened at the foot of Mount Sinai after God had brought them out of Egypt. <coughs> so we here have a picture 
tying Christ to the Passover is they give him sour wine. The one who is dying, they offer to him on hyssop. He takes it and drinks of it. Jesus dying in our place. Jesus, the Passover lamb, the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. But thirdly, we see Jesus dying in sinner's place. John writes, knowing that all things were now accomplished, Jesus cried out in thirst and drank the sour wine. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We read from Isaiah 3 a little bit ago. I want to go back to that. Notice the language that the prophet writes with. As the Holy Spirit moves Isaiah along, looking to this moment that we find in John's gospel as well as the others, notice the language. He was wounded for our transgressions. There was no fault in Jesus. He was a spotless name of God. He was perfection, sinless, undefiled. He was wounded for our transgressions. Isaiah goes on, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. And we turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. What is happening at the cross? Jesus was sacrificed for guilty sinners. He hung there in our place. He was a substitute, even as the Passover lamb was a substitute, in a sense, for the firstborn in that household. That lamb dies so that the firstborn would live. Jesus is here dying so that we might live. Indeed, all who look to Jesus by faith might live. Jesus died in our place. This was prefigured all through the sacrificial system of the Old Testament that God had given to Moses and then his brother Aaron and the Levites were to carry out, the priests were to carry out, down through the generations, so that when a man was mindful of his sin, dependent on the sin in his ability, he was to bring an animal, a, a goat, a bullock, a, a lamb, a ram, or if he was poor, a pigeon, a turtle dove. And he was to come, and that animal, the sinner would confess his sins on that animal. And as I understand it, the sinner would cut the throat of that animal. And the priest would catch that blood and then do with it as God had pointed. Horns of the altar or so forth. Some was poured out the side of the altar. But what we see here is a clear picture of a sacrifice, a substitute. The sinner comes and he recognizes his sin and God has commanded. God has provided a way. He brings a substitute. And with his own hand, he slays a lamb or a goat. That he has raised. How obvious was it that that victim was dying in his place? And I'm convinced, I remember writing a paper on this in seminary, that that system, when the worshiper did so by faith, his sins were forgiven him. It wasn't just an empty ritual. He came in obedience to God, doing what God had commanded, not because of the blood of the lamb or the ram or the turtle dove, but because it pointed to the lamb of God. And by faith he obeyed God and was accounted to his righteousness. His sins were forgiven, even as we gather and confess our sins. For one, based on what one has done, they were looking for one who was to come 
this clear picture of a substitute and the fact that year after year, you think about the man of God, the woman of God who loved the Lord coming again and again to the tabernacle and to the temple, bringing their sacrifices, recognizing their sin, recognizing that this ram, this lamb, this turtle would never fully satisfy with an expectation and a hope of one who would come who would take away their sin. Look into that. And here he is. Knowing that all things were accomplished. It's all accomplished. It's all wrapped up. We're going to deal with this more fully next week when we consider it is finished. But it was accomplished. Jesus dying in the place of his people. Dying for those who had great need. Here's the Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world. Sinners all, do you hear this? Do you see the remarkable, as, as John Murray, Professor John Murray has put it, the marvelous manipulation of accounts. Our sin on Christ's account, his righteousness is placed on our account. The guilt, uh, the, the judgment that we deserve, Christ receives, and the righteousness and, and the blessing and the privilege that Christ has, then comes to us. We are guilty. We're unable. Apart from Christ, we have no hope. We should have received what Jesus received. And yet God provided a substitute. All the way back to the garden. But Adam and Eve had sinned. What was that? Their, their feeble attempt. They took leaves and stitched them together, covered up their nakedness. God coming, seeing their feeble attempts to deal with their problem. What does God do? He, he kills an animal. He sheds blood. There's, there's a sacrifice, a substitute that died in their place, and he clothed them in that garment, pointing to Christ, who clothes us in his righteousness. What a wrap up one final thing. Jesus thirsty to save sinners. Spurgeon deals with this. There's others I think right, Spurgeon rightly sees one last meeting in Christ's dying words, I thirst. Listen to Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. He says, Christ is always thirsting after the salvation of precious souls. And that cry on the cross was the outburst of the great heart of Jesus Christ as he saw the multitude and cried out unto his God, I thirst. He thirsts to redeem mankind. He thirsted to accomplish the work of, world of, our, work of our salvation. This very day, he's talking about even now, he thirsts still in the, that respect. He is still willing to receive those that come to him, still resolved that as such shall come to him, he will in no wise cast out. And he still desires that sinners come. So says Spurgeon. But this was part of Jesus' very meaning with those words at that moment. We may not be certain, but it is certain consistent with who Christ is. Spurgeon is correct in observing that Jesus longs to see sinners saved. He still does. He's at the right hand of the Father, crying out, making intercession, sending forth his spirit, raising up ministers of the gospel, filling them with spirit to send them out to preach this glorious gospel, saying to the church, Pray to the Father to send forth workers into the harvest, for the fields are ripe unto harvest. All of that comes together that clearly communicates to us 
Jesus thirsts for sinners to be saved. He has died to secure salvation. He has died for his people. He longs for them to grow home. He wants to see the full host and the complete number assembled there at the feet of the Father as he delivers up the host unto him. There's one more thing in this context. We see it in Jesus' life, going all the way back to John 4. Remember the appointment? It was necessary for Jesus to go to Sychar. Jesus had an appointment there with a Samaritan woman. A woman and a Samaritan of all things. Jesus, you see this thirsting for sinners. He comes at midday when everybody else is in their house out of the heat of the sun. And here's this woman who then feels comfortable in her shame to come to get water for her household. And she has this encounter with Jesus. She's come with her water pot. And Jesus says, if you knew who it was that speaks to you, you would ask him for water. Jesus says to her, whoever drinks the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. That's Christ. He is the wellspring of water. He is the wellspring of life. This is what he told the disciples in the upper room. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here, the living wellspring of water, in his suffering and affliction, for sinner's sake, thirst. Yes, it reminds us of his humanity, but it also speaks to the heart of our Savior. He loves sinners. He suffered for our sake. Do you see Jesus? Is he not the fairest of 10,000? Is he not the glorious rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley? Indeed, there is no other religion that has a savior like this. It is Christianity alone, the true religion that has come down from God into men, that we have the one who saves us, dies to save us. The one who is the offended one, the righteous judge, comes to be judged in our place, that we who had no ability of ourselves, that he could redeem us and bring us home to God. There is no other religion like this. My friends, this is the one true religion. And I declare to you with confidence, all others are frauds. And they're the lie of the devil that would lead men astray and deceive them and hold them in bondage. Jesus has come to deliver sinners from bondage. He says... Whoever shall come unto me, I will in no wise cast out. And so sinners, come to Jesus and welcome to Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father, even as the angels came to announce the birth of our Savior, the coming of the incarnate one, God in the flesh, their pronouncement was glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Lord, we rejoice, for we know that you cannot be pleased with us apart from Christ. But by sending Christ and working in us, you become pleased with us as we are hidden in our Redeemer and covered with his righteousness. Father, we thank you that Christ did not seek his own way, but he suffered and afflicted until the work was, was suffered and was afflicted until the work was done. And then he declared his thirst. Father, may there be something in us of a longing for sinner's salvation. <coughs> Lord, help us to carry this glorious message to our family members as we will be gathering at this season. Lord, help us to be bold 
to speak to them of the beauty, the glory, the excellency, the majesty, the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may you be pleased to work in them. Lord, continue to bless us and grow up in our Redeemer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's take a